Hello and welcome to Oh What A Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was absolutely rubbish. I'm Chris Skull. I'm Tom Crane. And I'm Ellis James. Each week on this show we'll be looking at a new historical subject and today we're going to be discussing plots. From Catherine the Great to the infamous gunpowder plot to how the 19th century writer Washington Irving got famous. This show has it all. What we got in there, we, we put out a massive request for correspondence last week yep. across a multitude of different hot podcasting features. <laughs> what have the audience come back to us with? Well, as usual, they've come up trumps. Um, I'm going to kick things off with Matt Pomroy, uh, unless either of you have a problem with that. Are you no, all right with that? Great surname. Love that. Yeah, isn't I? Pomroy. 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 <laughs> <laughs> We've got a lot of listeners that sound like uh, children who are in trouble like at school in like 1930, 1940. Yeah. Private schools in about 1950. Is that a frog yeah. in your pocket, Pomroy? <laughs> General was at the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> exactly. Pomroy thought they should advance, and as a consequence, <laughs> 10,000 men died. <laughs> Nice one, Pomroy. Pomroy's, Pomroy's battalion infamously mowed down <laughs> within seconds of the Battle of Waterloo starting. Pomroy famously fled as yeah, soon as yeah, his men yeah. started getting mowed down. Yeah, and, uh, and was caught drinking wine as his men died. <laughs> nice one, Pomroy. And it all came down to that he was four foot two, of course. That's what people think. It's kind of it was a, it was a small man. Thing. A real complex about it. <laughs> <laughs> he used to wear huge wooden shoes, didn't he, of course, yeah. in battle. Imagine if we're really... This is absolutely the bullseye of what Matt Pomeroy is like, and he's now at home going, this is genuinely quite yeah. helpful. Or he's like, have they met me? When am I, have I no, met? It wouldn't be not, not that Matt Pomeroy, his ancestors, obviously. Yeah. So the contemporary Matt Pomeroy has emailed us a suggestion for One Day Time Machine, Britain's hottish format point. Play the jingle. It's the one-day time machine. 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 So here's Matt's suggestion. Matt has said, um, my choice would be to go back to May 1997 to the Essential Festival in Brighton, to the time I met gangster rapper Ice T. (laughs) (laughs) We all knew this day would come, didn't we, Chris and Ellis? This, we all we all knew someday this this email would come that inevitably one of our listeners would have met Ice T. I I assumed May ninety seven he was going to be on the left and it was he was going to want to relive Blair's election victory. <laughs> I didn't I did not see Ice T coming. I would head to Michael Portillo's constituency and I would be there at the, on the front row as the results are read out. <laughs> Well, you assume that's not where this email is heading now. Okay. It might be where he's going to take iced tea. Well, you, would a, make, uh... what, you, you would make iced tea a member of the cabinet. <laughs> Foreign secretary instead of Robin Cook. <laughs> iced tea. Anything goes in one day time machine. Well, it says here, what I would do is this time when iced tea went to give me a fist bump, I wouldn't panic and shake his fist handshake style. <laughs> Leaving me feeling like the most middle-class man on earth. It's oh, haunted my. me to this day, and I've never felt cool in any way since. That's from um, Matt Pomroy. Um, so Ice T went for the fist bump, and good old Matt Pomroy grabbed it and shook shake, it up and down. Oh my god! Oh man, that is so bad. I could I could see why you want to use the t- use your one chance in the time machine to correct that error. Well, actually, that email from Pomroy brings back terrible memories for me because on Fancy Football League the reboot which I present which uh, Tom is one of the, the brilliant writers on we used to have we used to have AJ Tracy as a guest and AJ Tracy this grime artist is one of the coolest men in Britain uh, and he used to fist bump me and I've never been a fist bumper it wasn't something that happened at school High fives, obviously. I'm I'm well aware of the whole high five scene. So I I just I'd never done it. I'd I'd sort of progressed from the high five to the handshake at about the age of eighteen. So I've been a handshaker like Pombroy for a very very long time. Yeah, and we had AJ Tracy on the show twice. And he was a great guest. He's a massive Spurs fan. His mother is a Cardiff City fan, actually. Interestingly, which was loads of fun, and. Because of his because of his music career, I mean, whenever he was on the show, people would 
would love it. They'd lose their minds. And we'd be in the little tunnel, like at Wembley, before you go onto the set. And he would always fist bump me because I didn't know what to do. I would always fist bump him back way too hard. Like, you just, you, you're just meant to, you're just basically meant to touch fists. And before, before we'd go on set, it was like I was trying to break his knuckles. It was, it was like a real we power bo- play. It was like we were boxers and facing off in the you know in the weigh-in, like or in a press conference. He would just sort of go, you know, touch, and I'd be like, yeah, bang. <laughs> and it was only when Mens, who's uh, who was the sort of the new stato, who obviously is young, he said to me. Man, why the fuck are you fist bumping so hard? It's horrible. Yeah. I was like, oh, is that, is that not what you do? He's like, no. <laughs> so now I can't, I can't think of AJ Tracy without just wanting to dissolve with embarrassment. <laughs> so there we go. That is Matt Pomroy, who uh, still lives in shame after making iced tea. Pomeroy! Charlie Porter. Charlie Porter has been in contact. Now, last week... In our episode about inventions, I talked about the Paternoster lift, a lift which doesn't stop. It goes round and round and round. People have to step on and step off at their own peril. And we've had so many emails about the Paternoster lift. It's ridiculous. People love them or hate them or fear them, whatever. They've got in contact to tell us about them. And Charlie Porter has got in contact to say this. Hi, guys. If you're planning to visit a Paternoster lift at any point there's no need to go to germany or the czech republic and try and sneak past the barriers there's a paternoster lift in sheffield university's arts tower the paternoster is completely accessible to the public and whilst inefficient for long journeys is the quickest way to travel between two floors taking only 13 seconds sheffield's paternoster is made up of 38 two-person cars covers all 22 stories now this is a bit i like there's a game apparently students like to get on the lift and try to finish an entire bottle of wine before returning to the same floor. <laughs> <laughs> but she's added, although it's not encouraged. <laughs> students. That is class. You know, um, if you go to the top of a Paternoster lift, you know, it kind of goes round at the very top and comes back down. Yes. It's not like the vestibule isn't like crushed at the top, is it? No. So you could you can you could potentially just ride it in a big loop for ages. I mean, take enough wine. What a day! <laughs> You'd need a chair, wouldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> lovely. One of those big boxes of wine you get from like. <laughs> you know, why, why is like why, why have people like, down the years always like sat in a bath of beans for charity? Surely just sat yeah. sit in a vestibule of a paternoster lift with a bottle of wine for twenty four hours. I'd I'd sponsor <laughs> someone for that. Also. <laughs> Imagine the state you've been at the end. You've been at the end. Yeah. When they stop the Paternoster lift and you just stagger off and finish the box of wine. Yeah. Eat nothing for 24 hours. <laughs> Genuine question. I come up to you guys and go, okay, I'm going to do a thing for charity. I'm going to drink 12 Stella in a Paternoster lift. <laughs> How much are you sponsoring me for that? I have to finish all 12 cans. A grand. <laughs> a grand. What would you do if David Blaine revealed his next stunt was that he's going to live in a Paternoster lift for a month? Yeah. Just going round and round. And Eamon Holmes would get him on morning television and say, what are you going to do about the toilet, David? And David would just stare at him. And he'd be like, I'll, I'll go like a cat. I'll, I, will bury my, uh, I will bury my waist on the Paternoster lift. <laughs> Well, you talk about that fear of going over the top there, Chris, and, uh, you know, what could happen. Emma from Sheffield has also got in contact. We'll, we'll, we'll close this bit of correspondence because there is a big fear that when you go over the top, there's this long-held rumour here that the carriage is flipped upside down when they went over, but that is not true. Basically what happens yeah. is they just go into the dark. There's a lot of mechanical noise. Apparently it's really, really scary, and oh, then you do oh, come man. down the other side. That's what happens. If you're one of the chosen ones. If you're, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Otherwise you just get mashed. Just get flattened. <laughs> and emerge pizza, with sort of like pizza-sized depth. Um, it says here, it was... Also, the host, she's added this for Sheffield University, the Paternoster lift at Sheffield University was also the host for a number of university-wide cultural events, including a Halloween event where ghosts and zombies hid in the carriages during the day, a conceptual dance piece performed between carriages, 
um, and its most consistent feature was breaking down at least weekly, resulting in the maintenance staff having to go to each floor with a ladder and having to fish out the folk that were stuck between the floors. Which he said is terrifying the first time, just annoying every time after. I think if something's (laughs) breaking down that regularly... I said it last week, I'm going with the stairs. I think that's, that's, what, that's what I'm going with. Yeah. When I was about eight, I went to a place called Ships and Castles Swimming Pool in Helston, Cornwall. That morning, my dad had bought some incredibly cheap swimming shorts made of material that has never been seen in any other swimming shorts. I've never, I okay. don't know what the material was. What, anyway. pizza bread? <laughs> well, it might as well have been, because when he went down the first water slide, it turns out they were so grippy that he got stuck... He couldn't move down the water slide. What do you mean? It was like rubber. What they made of rubber or something? They had to send a rescue team. They had to send a teenager who worked for the swimming pool down the slide in in normally slippy shorts to shove my dad down the rest of the way. And you could see the silhouette of him. It wasn't, it was sort of vaguely transparent, the slide. So I was stood downstairs and I could see my father moving slowly down. It was so undignified. It took, like, I'm not going to lie, I'll, it was about four minutes to get him down this <laughs> And he came out at the end and said, could it be worse, could have been a paternoster. So there we are. So um, Emma in Sheffield, thank you very much for that. And also Charlie Porter. Uh, that's amazing. Sheffield Uni, if you live near Sheffield and want to see a paternoster, that is the place to go. Uh, more generally, if you want to get in contact with the show, if you have things you want to talk to us about, here's how. <laughs> All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at ohwhatatime.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ohwhatatimepod. Now, clear off. Well, uh, because we're discussing plots this week... I will be talking about um, probably one of the more famous plots, certainly in the UK. I mean, it's it's a huge part of uh, British culture. I'm going to be talking about the gunpowder plot. I'm going to be talking about how a now very famous author in the early 19th century managed to make himself famous. And I'll be talking to you about Catherine the Great of Russia. Firstly, I think you've done well in life. If your nickname is The Great. Yes. And also, she's done very well in life. Her... The, the image of Catherine the Great would be so different if she'd been called Kath the Great. <laughs> or Kathy the Great. But certainly Kath. One thing I find weird about Catherine the Great, you know her heir, her son, was called Paul. Paul the First of Russia. Paul. I feel for Paul. Also, there's a sort of pressure in your life if your mum's the great. That feels like <laughs> yeah, yeah. if your parent ever refers to them as the great. Paul the average. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Poor old Paul. I wanted to start as well talking about, well, while, while I've been researching Catherine the Great, there's a song by the Divine Comedy that's just been going round and round in my head. I said I sent it to you boys. Did you check it out? Did you did you catch a bit? I of did it? listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Lovely little song. I, I think it's the, my favourite song about someone from history. And in fact, I'm going to drop it a little bit here because I love it so much. Let's talk of Catherine the Great. Let's talk of love and the power of the state. She was a crazy, spontaneous girl. Everyone paid homage to her. The, the Divine Comedy, Catherine the Great. Is there any... I'm trying to think of songs that are that good about historical subjects, and maybe the listeners can chip in on, in on this, but Rasputin by Boney M would be the oh, one that comes yes. to mind. The Mannix, obviously. They, they, um, if you tolerate this, your children will be next. Is about the Spanish Civil War. Is, is it really? They, yeah, yeah, yeah. No I way! If I, I just... can shoot rabbits, I can shoot fascists. Oh, wow. Oh. I must admit, despite having heard that about 500 times, I've taken none of that in. <laughs> and I'd like to apologise to the Mannix if they are listening. Do you, do you know what? That, that, that is the kind of, ex- of behaviour I would expect from Paul the Average. But certainly not from Tom the Great. 
Um, well, if the listener, if you know, if you're listening to this and you know any, any good songs about historical subjects, I'd love you to chip in on that. Hello at ohwhatatime.com. Right, Catherine the Great. Lots of rumours about Catherine the Great. Have you heard the rumour that um, she died while sleeping with a horse? Have you heard that rumour? No. Oh, God, no. Well, it's not true. Well, I'm here to say it's not true. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> but that rumour did knock about. She was born in modern-day Poland, then part of the Kingdom of Russia, um, and she met her husband, Grand Duke Peter, when she was 10 years old. And Grand Duke Peter, history has not been kind to that fella. When Catherine the Great met him at 10 years old, she detested him immediately. This is what she would write later on. She hated the fact that he was so pale. Lots of mu- remarks made about the fact... I was thinking that's such a damning thing to say about someone like when the, when the historical record is picked up and it says, "Oh, he was very is a pale man." Like, yeah, straight away, yeah. you get an image. Yeah. Also, back then, wasn't everyone pale? I don't think anyone was sort of rocking a like incredible Magaluf tan, were they? Was that a thing that you got in Russia? I mean, I reckon, I reckon uh, Peter the Catherine the Great's husband Peter, he was probably tanned. He was probably very, very pale for 11 months of the year, and then in July, terribly sunburnt. <laughs> he just came back from holiday. This was pre-lotion as well, wasn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, she met him at 10, detested him immediately, hated the fact he was so pale. They, they, uh, she moved to Russia at age 15 and got married at the age of 15, in St. Petersburg, where she got she was changed her name from Princess Sophie to Catherine. Growing up, she was regarded as a bit of a tomboy and was known to be quite good with a sword. Is that a good thing? I don't know. If I'm, if I'm a kind of Russian prince, if you're quite pale and meek, having a wife who's double hard, that feels like... That like wouldn't be a good match. Well, it depends how you, if you, how how relations are. If you're getting on, then it's I'd, it'd be, I'd love to have a protector with a sword. If I lived at that in that time period, it would be I, it's exactly what I would require to survive. Tom, you, you, that's what you have now. <laughs> yeah, her sword uh, being that she understands mortgage repayments and uh, just general life stuff. So quite soon into the marriage she realised she was way more intelligent than poor old Grand Duke Peter. Um, She quite quickly realised she could outmanoeuvre him in court. And so she set about learning. One thing she did was that she really wanted to ingratiate herself in Russian culture, so she would stay up all night in the freezing cold um, in the castle she was living in, learning Russian. And um, she got so cold frequently that she uh, she nearly died of pneumonia. Wow. And she credits her survival to bloodletting. So here's, here's an account of someone who said, bloodletting worked for me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to suggest she's a hypocrite, but I think if you're living in a tower in the freezing cold, you've got pneumonia and you're bloodletting, you're looking pretty pale yourself, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, I, once again, it feels like a strange thing to have a problem with. I guarantee that she was translucent, basically. Yeah. <laughs> There's there's lots of accounts that Peter and Catherine do not get on. They're staying at opposite ends of the castle, and they do not consummate the marriage for years. A lot of pressure on the first time. <laughs> if it's years in the making. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God, you've got to get that right. Did you say the opposite ends of the castle, you were saying? They lived in different bedrooms. Yeah, opposite ends. And, then they, and they didn't consummate it at all until... One night when they both they both happen to leave their chambers at the same time, fancying it and meeting in the middle. <laughs> Can't, what are the chances? Catherine says they didn't consummate the marriage. This is an interesting turn of phrase due to his mental immaturity. Oh, that's what she says was the reason. But okay, what does that mean? What is he doing? Just playing FIFA on the PlayStation all night? Like... Yeah, <laughs> he's always making fart jokes. He refuses to take anything seriously. If they sit down at the banquet, it's a whoopee cushion. Yeah. Here's Peter. <laughs> Pull on your knickers. Is this itchy? If you put itching powder in my, in my yeah, knickers, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, good one. <laughs> yeah, good one. She was always saying that. Good one. Yeah. You're clearly not... Re- I can see you're not removing your thumb properly. It's just your other thumb <laughs> removing it away from your hand. It's, it's obviously not the same thumb. You haven't got my nose, you fucking wanker. <laughs> I'm not shaking your hand. I know you've got an electric buzzer there. <laughs> He seems like a fun guy. I like him, actually. I like this guy. I know it's only glitter in that bucket, you twat. 
<laughs> oh, poor old Peter. <laughs> Peter. Peter, man. Honestly, Peter comes out of history horrifically. The other thing she says about him is he drink, drinks way too much. But his, yeah. So his, Peter's mum, Elizabeth, Elizabeth of Russia is the uh, the regent of Russia. And she basically allowed uh, Catherine to have lovers uh, once she but once they'd produced an heir and that was the future Paul the 1st of Russia. So so then the mum is like oh the mother-in-law is like oh go on in. I would far rather not be remembered than be remembered in that way. I would rather just disappear in history than be like someone, some than than be the kind of person that people were taking the piss out of on podcasts yeah. two hundred years after yeah. my death. You know, the old I'd rather be talked about than not talked about at all, no matter how negative it is. I've never really subscribed subscribe subscribed to that notion. Poor old Peter as well. It was it thought he was pretty much universally disliked at court. He was right. a bit of a horrible boss. No one really liked him. Catherine herself took on many lovers, including the individual who was to lead the military forces during the coup d'etat in the summer of 1762, Prince Georgi Orlov, with whom she was very close. Georgi? Georgi. They all sound like they're in 60s British beat groups. <laughs> oh, sorry. Georgi, Paul and Catherine. It's, I'm sorry, it's Grigory. Grigory. Oh, okay. Like Grigory with an I. Apologies. Apologies to history. We will get stuff wrong on this. Um, <laughs> Georgie. <laughs> George. Um, as it was, Catherine decided on conspiracy. They ascend to the throne on the 5th of January, 1762. And Catherine takes one of Russia's oldest regiments and overthrows Peter. Firstly, has him arrested and forces him to abdicate on the 9th of July. And a week later, Peter is dead. But no one knows for sure how he died. Was it natural causes? No, almost certainly not. He was pale. He (laughs) was. (laughs) Massive vitamin D deficiency. Yeah. That's what finished him off. Wow. Catherine, yeah, she usurped her husband. He's dead. She ascends to the throne. Coronation set on the 22nd of September, 1762. Catherine becomes the most powerful woman on earth. She was to be Empress of Russia until her death in 1796. She went on, of course, like, led a massive renaissance in culture and, and sciences across Russia. And people flocked throughout Europe to live there. She did loads of clever stuff, centralised healthcare, and she was one of the first regents to be inoculated against smallpox and tried to have such inoculations imposed on her own subjects. So she oh, wasn't wow. sort of anti-vax then? She was quite no. sort of, yeah, that's no. nice. <laughs> yeah. progressive. Massively progressive in loads of different ways. The most interesting thing I always thought about her, wrote her own comedies in her spare time. I love that. I bet she was ripping off loads of her ex-husband's um, funny ideas he was doing when he was being apparently immature. But actually, a lot of the stuff came from that. <laughs> Do you think like Peter was actually the her comedic muse? Maybe at points, like this. As the, this guy's such an absolute wally. Yeah, <laughs> he just makes a great material. It's, um, it's an odd thought, isn't it, to to go down in history, just be unanimously regarded as a bit of an idiot. On your deathbed, you must be like, for God's sake. <laughs> History's not going to judge me kindly at all. And I know I've got bigger fish to fry at the moment. But I am... I sort of wish I'd acted differently aged. Zero to present day. But also, like... I mean, I feel so sorry for Peter. If he's if he goes through the history books now, it's like his wife totally deposed him. And not only that, her nickname's The Great. She ended up yeah, murdering yeah. you. And she's seen as the, cha- like the champion of the story. Like, she's the best bit of the story. But, you know, would... Healthcare had been nationalised, etc. If she hadn't bumped him off, I mean, almost certainly not. The guy was an absolute wally. <laughs> <laughs> wally. <laughs> he was too, too, too busy perusing Saint Petersburg's joke shops to centralise healthcare. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm going to talk about something that everyone has heard of. So, remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason and plot. And that alongside 
the kind of mnemonic you about Henry VIII's six wives or Richard of York and the colours of the rainbow, you know, Roy G. Biv and all that kind of stuff. That that rhyme about Guido Fawkes and his efforts to blow up the House of Parliament in November 1605. It's, I think everyone in the UK, or certainly everyone who went to school in the UK, has a little bit of that knowledge in the back of their minds. Because obviously everyone celebrates it with fireworks night. Can, can, I, can I say as well, do you think, I've always thought with the gunpowder plot, that people are on Guy Fawkes' side... Do you not feel like the British public, they kind of wanted it to happen in a weird way? I know I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. To a certain extent, he's almost seen as a kind of an odd folk hero in a yeah. mad way. When you consider yeah. what he was trying to do. Now, we have a lot of foreign listeners who might not know about it, so I'm going to give you a very, very quick crash course in Guy Fawkes. The gunpowder plot of 1605 was a failed assassination attempt against King James I by a group of English Catholics, led by Robert Catesby, who I'd completely forgotten about. We studied the gunpowder plot at school, but Guy Fawkes is the one who everyone knows about. And uh, their actions were uh, considered uh, attempted tyrannicide because they sought regime change in England because there'd been decades of religious persecution against the Catholics. So the plan was to blow up the House of Lords during the state opening of Parliament on the 5th of November 1605. And this was going to be a prelude to a popular revolt in the Midlands. Um, and they were going to install King James's nine-year-old daughter, Princess Elizabeth, as a new head of state. I mean, again, it's it's crazy how young monarchs could be yeah. in this time. <laughs> Imagine having a nine-year-old in charge. <laughs> My daughter's nine, and and this isn't me being a parent. She's bright. I don't think she's ready to be in charge of the UK. I tell you what it feels like. It feels like a movie in the late 80s, early 90s, doesn't it, where a nine-year-old becomes king, and the storyline would be, this is ridiculous, this is no way it's going to work out, and then actually, by the end, you'd realise that that childhood spirit, that naive innocence, is exactly what the country needed. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, <laughs> colouring in should be a massive part of uh, workplace yeah. culture, and, and maybe it is appropriate to have one of those massive pianos you play with your feet in a in a tower. <laughs> <laughs> and five jammy dodges a day makes people happier. It's it's, it's <laughs> these are good policies that are required. Yeah. Now, Catesby is suspected by historians to have embarked on this scheme after hopes of greater religious tolerance under King James I had faded, leaving a lot of the English Catholics disappointed. So we had lots of fellow conspirators, Guy Fawkes being one of them. Now, there were concerns about collateral damage. Um, so an anonymous letter of warning was sent to William Parker, who was the fourth Baron uh, Monteagle, on the 26th of October 1605. He showed it to the authorities. So they did a search of the House of Lords in the evening of the 4th of November 1605 and Guy Fawkes, who's the one everyone remembers, and he had 10 years uh, military experience fighting in the Spanish Netherlands in the failed suppression of the Dutch Revolt. And he'd fought in the Eight Years' War and things against Spain. Um, He was discovered guarding 36 barrels of gunpowder, which was enough to reduce the House of Lords to rubble. So then he was arrested. Wow. So most of the conspirators fled from London after they learned the plot had been discovered. Um, but he's the one we all remember. He Very briefly, Ellis, he's been given the... That's the crap job, isn't it? Being the one well, who's told guard- they have to guard the gunpowder. <laughs> yeah. You stand by the gunpowder. We'll do what... We're all doing important stuff elsewhere. Don't, don't you worry about that guy. <laughs> like, could, could they not just... Once they'd got it down there, could they not just leave it? Yeah. yeah this is this is what I think about the gunpowder plot because if you're if you're like they were searching, they got tipped off in the end, didn't they? They were searching for the gunpowder. But surely yeah. if there's a guy like in the dark guarding a bunch of barrels, you're gonna go, Well that's suspicious. <laughs> With a yeah. cigarette lighter, but he clearly doesn't smoke. <laughs> yeah. What, what, are you, what are you doing down there, mate? Nothing. Nothing, <laughs> <laughs> no. Just having a nap. I'm just, I'm really I'm just Really interested in the uh, the, the foundations of, of the House of Lords, so I th- thought I'd I'd come down and um, and just sort of sit next to these barrels that I don't know what they are. Also, once you've got the thirty six barrels of gunpowder there, why aren't you just blowing it up then? What is the well, delay? They, they, it was the, they, they wanted the it was the opening of Parliament, so the uh, key yeah, they wanted to do it was going to be there. You there blow. you go. What you, you can't just blow the building up? It's going to like. Well, that'll learn you. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, got you. So he he's the one that we all remember, and he's the one um, 
He's the one everyone's heard of. Now, like all good plots, it's got all the elements of a compelling story because you've got, you know, you've got two houses opposed to each other, bitterly opposed to each other. So the Protestants on one side and then the Catholics on the other. There was intrigue, there was conspiracy. There was an element of a thriller, race against time. There was a hapless political target for assassination. It was neither wholly good nor bad and also by no means universally admired. He's not quite He's not quite uh, Peter from Russia, but, uh, he's, <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he, history has mixed feelings about him. Now, people were so shocked by the gunpowder plot, Parliament passed a law, the observance of the 5th of November Act, 1606, shortly after the plot was foiled, so that we would never forget it. And it, that remained on the statute book until 1859. Wow. So the Act of Parliament mandated on the 5th of November each year there'd be a special church service, a remembrance ceremony, which was made compulsory for all members of a parish. How interesting. And there were several other politically motivated remembrance days mandated by Parliament in the early 17th century, but none of them stuck. So, you know, there was the there were Remembrance Days for the massacre of the Virginia Colony, for the execution of Charles I, Royal Oak Day, Restoration of the Monarchy Day, but these didn't stick. Was the gunpowder plot, you know, the uh, that that did stick yeah. the remembrance yeah. of the gunpowder plot. I think because it would have been so spectacular. Have you seen on YouTube there I think it was a, a programme for the Discovery Channel, they recreated what would have happened. They built a kind of uh, a reconstruction of what Parliament would have been would have looked like, and they put mannequins in the positions. Full size house of Parliament. <laughs> yeah, it basically, what like really? reconstructed what it would have been at, at that time. Put the requisite amount of gunpowder underneath and blew it up. And can I say there is no way in hell you're surviving it? The explosion is enormous. Right, it, like the amount of gunpowder they had. There's also, also I'm remembering now. There's questions around whether the gunpowder had gone bad or not because of the where it, where. It, way in which it was stored and how long it had been stored and whether it had gotten damp. But if the gunpowder were to have ignited, man, you would have heard that explosion for miles around and there's no way you're surviving it if you're in the building. Well, there's a there's also a, an extra political dimension. So it was also used to mark the arrival of William of Orange at Brixham in Devon on the 5th of November 1688 and the start of the Glorious Revolution, which culminated in the overthrow of the Catholic King James II. And then you've got William's birthday on the 4th of November. So it was a double celebration in his honour and image. But the really, really exciting thing that everyone loved is that you're not going to celebrate a plot involving gunpowder with a church service and the reading out of a sermon. <laughs> you know, you're going, to, you, you're going to remember it in the form of processions and bonfires yeah. with effigies and small rockets, squibs, miniature fireworks. You know, so they, they didn't have any of the percussive power or the, how can I put it, the illuminative presence of today's explosives and fireworks. Yeah. But it was really, really exciting and it was fun. So over time, the 5th of November was transformed from essentially religious and high political celebration, which focused on the monarchy and and on Parliament, into one which sort of allowed for the voicing of more proletarian anxieties, right? So by by the late 18th century, you'd have the sight of kids carrying an effigy of Guido Fawkes around town in pursuit of small change. That was very common. That still happens, obviously. A penny for poor guy. Yeah. penny for the guy. That still happens. All in, uh, you know, in advance of the effigy being thrown onto the bonfire in the evening. And I don't know if you've watched the um, David Beckham documentary on Netflix, but there was... Uh, effigies are still very popular. There was an effigy of David Beckham hung outside a pub in East London by a West Ham fan. I mean, <laughs> effigies are still big. Yeah. Not as big as they were, but yeah, still... Still big. It'd be great to bring back effigies, I think. <laughs> um, you don't see many... That guy, I remember being a kid and seeing the guy on the fire, but I haven't seen that in years. Is that ended? Yes, I have. Is I remember seeing that as a kid, and you don't see... In the, in the 80s, that was definitely still happening, but I haven't seen that for a long time. No, I haven't either. I think... I don't know how... Like, it's so weird, isn't it? For kids, thinking about now, like, oh, we go, oh, here's a pretend man. Let's throw him on the fire and watch him burn. Yeah, it's now more fireworks and things organised by the local sort of Rotary Club. Yeah. As opposed to, let's burn an effigy of a bloke. <laughs> yeah. That will be absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, in like the end of Guy Fawkes' life is horrific. Uh, you know, I think he, I think he had his fair share of, like, 
horribleness. We don't need to then, in death, create an effigy of him and burn it all over the country yeah. again and again for hundreds of years. But do you know what's interesting? In the age of political cartoons and the terror of the French Revolution and growing demands for democratic reform, it was not only Guy Fawkes who was thrown onto these great bonfires. Oh, right. You had all manner of enemies um, put on bonf- bonfires and they they found themselves similarly thrust, including those who opposed the Great Reform Act of 1832, People who opposed the Great Reform Act, the refugees of them, and they were put on bonfires. So it was a really political thing. I mean, now I think of it as being candy floss and sort of standing in the cold and people eating baked potatoes and fireworks. And also on social media, pet owners complaining. That's what I think of when I think of bonfire night. We've talked about if we had to go back and make a living during the 19th or 18th century, effigy maker. That could be your thing. <laughs> That's the job. You just open up a shop, and you just get, you people come in and they go right. Who who do you want? And they'll say, "Well, my, my next door neighbour Barry's been really annoying me. He keeps talking about moving the hedge, and it's encroaching on my land. Can you not one up Barry or whatever?" And I, I, that's your shop. You're making effigies. You're making whatever people need. I think you've created a hobby more than a job. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can turn your hobby into a living, then that's a life well spent, isn't it? That's the thing. Yeah. So. But then, but then Queen Victoria, by her time, she felt that the fifth of November celebrations were old hat. They were they should, something that should be forgotten. They were a bit old fashioned and outmoded. Um, and also fireworks became a target for the authorities because of out of fear that in the wrong hands they would cause personal injury or widespread damage to property. Something that still happens now. I mean, there were government information films when we were kids about the danger of fireworks. So they still are. So in the eighteen twenties, several towns, including Cambridge, just banned the use, warning any potential transgressors that they'd be heavily fined. In Carmarthen. The penalty was set at five quid, which the equivalent today of almost five hundred pounds, almost a month's what? wages for a skilled tradesman. Can I say, like, um, fireworks are basically explosives, aren't they? And now, even now, because of those public information adverts, yeah. I get nervous when I light a firework in my garden. And and, that, and this is with modern safety in mind. Going back to the Victorian era, what kind of fireworks they knock it up? They must be like the sticks of dynamite, isn't it? My birthday is the third of November, so as a kid. My birthday party was always a fireworks party in my back garden. <laughs> Done by my dad. My dad doesn't know how to use explosives. My friend Dan, who's a stand up comic who, who Tom knows, he was. I've, I, I've known Dan since I was three. He describes thinking about my birthday parties as being like a Vietnam flashback <laughs> because we were stood by the patio door. That's my old man in a duffel coat because it's like 1987. He's going back to lit fireworks and yeah. <laughs> fired off into trees. Was... Casting wheels going mad next to the swing. Do you remember those? I think they're called Roman candles. The ones where you pop them in the ground, they just shoot little fire up, you know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like 10 feet in the air. I was once at a garden based firework display and one of those Roman candles fell over. Uh, like no. once it oh was God. lit and started shooting the Roman candle into the house. Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> so all of us like running in the house, like, ah! It was well, Something like this happens every year. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of crazy that we're allowed to do it. It's amazing that you can buy them in a news agent. <laughs> in, in an aspect, this is an aspect of my personality that people find difficult to believe because it's not consistent with any other aspects of my personality. I think fireworks are really pretty. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love I fireworks. <laughs> Whenever I see fireworks, yeah. I coo like an old lady <laughs> because I just think they're. Re- <laughs> I just think they're really, really pretty. And when I say this, ninety-nine percent of people just assume I'm taking the piss. Yeah. <laughs> But I stick with it because I'm not taking the piss. Oh, and then no one, no, people are like, yeah, good one, Al. He's really sticking with his fireworks a pretty thing. I'm like, no, I just think they're really nice looker. To be fair, Ed, I do, I do agree with that. That I do When I go to them, I do think they're spectacular. Can I ask you one quick question? My other thing is when I go to fireworks, still to this age, I fear a gone-out sparkler on the floor more than anything in the world. As soon yeah, as I see of, someone, I'm like, nobody touch it! Nobody, It could be yeah, really hot! Yeah. Like, genuine Because panic. of the government information exactly, film yeah, we were all shown. The late 80s one. Go on, go on, show Jill your hand. I- <laughs> <laughs>
because people love fireworks and people love a bonfire, you could take the political element and the historical element out of it and it would still carry on. But that is the reason we celebrate um, uh, fireworks nights and bonfire nights because of the gunpowder plot. It's absolutely fascinating. And I, but you are, it's also amazing to me, as you say, that it still blows my mind that this happens. That, yeah, well, yeah. Like, how long will, do you think there will be a time in 50 years that that will not be the case? That it's no longer okay to be firing rockets randomly into the sky? Uh, well, my thing is, like, America has the 5th of July. Like, every country needs a night for fireworks. Yes. And I think it's kind of that, isn't it? More than a celebration. I don't imagine there's many back garden firework displays where they're thinking, we are marking the gunpowder plot tonight, kids. No, no, definitely not. Yeah. No, I, I mean, yes. I've never met anyone who's like, God, so glad they got him in the end. I love <laughs> he deserved everything he got. Been working on this effigy for four months. Hate that guy. So I'm going to talk to you guys about how one of the most successful authors in history plotted his way to success. Now, are you familiar with Washington Irving? Have you heard of Washington Irving? I've heard of him. I've never read any of his books. Okay. Uh, Chris, your no, silence never suggests heard of not. First, <laughs> your first. complete and utter silence and utterly unmoving face suggests <laughs> that you're not familiar with Washington Irving. When you said the words Washington Irving, that was the first time I've heard them. Okay, right. <laughs> so that's In that hilarious. order. So Washington Irving is now best known for writing Rip Van Winkle, which you may be aware okay. of, and um, more famously here, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, ah, um, which yeah. became the, the huge movie and uh, in America is like a hugely read book. Um, Rip Van Winkle written in 1819, Sleepy Hollow written in 1820. But when he was starting his career and about to launch his first major work in 1809, a book called The History, a History of New York. He had no profile, okay? So he decided that to make sure this book sold in any numbers, he needed to make himself famous, okay? So it's not easy in 1809. So, that, you know, there's no internet, social media, or any of these things that you'd normally use now, no TV, no radio, none of this stuff. No, newspapers would have been the ones... They were starting to creep in, exactly. That's yeah. right. I mean, h- how would you do it back then? If you had to make yourself famous in the early... Any, any idea how you might go about it? You could make yourself famous in your small town quite easily. Yes. <laughs> Simply by wearing no pants or trousers. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I'm doing to get famous, right? Okay. Yeah. Everyone's, everyone loves a lovely picture. Everyone's into art, yeah? Uh, so, and everything is quite well-defined, isn't it, in 1809? line draw you know night we're trying to replicate what a thing actually looks like i turn up everything's a bit smudged yes i've invented impressionism (laughs) 70 years early draw a lovely little fella get a sponge out give it a wipe there we go impressionism 70 years or so ahead of everyone else (laughs) now how do you think they're taking to this if this is 70 years early how are you selling this as good art when what they want is i'm saying this is impressionism you you idiots this is gonna be massive you don't know it yet because of your accent chris (laughs) i propose a new podcast chris skull very quickly defines art So you go through all of the different styles and epochs and eras and you summarise it in a couple of sentences. And I know that Thomas Skinner, Tom Skinner's the one who says bosh at the end of everything, but you were like, draw a lovely little fella, give it a wipe, bosh. Chris, let's test you with some. What's your description of modern art, Chris? Get out of your bed. <laughs> Put a, get a flatbed truck outside your house, put the bed on the truck, take it to a gallery, bosh. Modern art. Modern art, done, you're done. <laughs> Impressionism's rubbish, isn't it? I'm sorry. Why Why is this so, why was it so massive? Like, the, the whole thing of like, well, look at a picture, squint. Yeah, doesn't it look like it's better than it is now? Oh, yeah. my God. Well, that's Impressionism. Right. Cubism. <laughs> You take you take the work of art, the subjects are analysed, broken up, reassembled in an abstract form. Bosh. 
see what colours you got. You happen to have in the shed. Fill in the squares. <laughs> so that that isn't the option that Irving took. So Irving took a really weird approach um, to get himself famous. He started. This is so amazing. He started by placing a series of missing person ads in the city's newspapers. Okay, all Ooh. looking for information about the whereabouts of someone called Deirdrick Knickerbocker. Okay, the first advert appeared in the New York Evening Post on the 26th of October, 1809, under the headline, Distressing. And the advert read, Left his lodging sometime since and has not been heard of, a small elderly gentleman dressed in an old black coat and cocked hat by the name of Knickerbocker. As there are some reason for believing he is not entirely in his right mind, any information concerning him will be thankfully received. So this is the first thing he did, the first step on his really weird journey to make himself famous and sell his book. And then a few weeks later, another advert appeared, this time to the letters page, and this one read, To the editor of the Evening Post, Sir, having read in your paper of the 25th of October a paragraph respecting an old gentleman by the name of Knickerbocker, if it would be of any relief to his friends, you may inform them that a person answering a description was seen by the passengers of the Albany stage early in the morning, resting himself by the side of the road. He appeared to be travelling northward and was very fatigued and exhausted. That was from a traveller, simply written a traveller. And then week by week, he would post more and more of these adverts until the readers of the paper became absolutely obsessed with who this Knickerbocker guy was. Oh, wow. And they just were desperate for any details they could get their hands on. Now, would you like to guess at this point what his plan is? Why is he doing I can't. I'm trying to figure it out. The, I can't. I can't. It see is where brilliant, is. to be fair. Is he going to be Knickerbocker? Well, you'll find out. Uh, would you like to have a guess, uh, Ellis? Is he, is he eventually going to write to the newspaper and say, I'm Knickerbocker? I don't know. I don't know. What is he going to do? It's actually this is even more complex than that. Now, bearing in mind, you have to remember that Washington Irving became one of the great writers of the period. So it, this really worked. Okay. Next. Okay. This is the crucial step. He added something else to the mix with the following appearing in the press a couple of weeks later. You've been good enough to publish in your paper a paragraph about Mr. Deirdrick Knickerbocker, who was missing so strangely from his lodgings some time since. Nothing satisfactory has been heard of the old gentleman since, but a very curious kind of written book has been found in his room in his own handwriting. Now, I wish you to notice him, if he is still alive, that if he does not return soon and pay off his bill for boarding and lodging with me, I shall have to dispose of this book to satisfy me for that money. I am, sir, your humble servant. And that's from someone called Seth Handersai. But of course, once again, was Washington Irvin claiming to be someone else. And then a week later, and this is the crucial thing, uh, this day is published. This is, what was, this is what was written in the paper. This day is published by Inskeep and Bradford, A History of New York. Price $3 containing the account discovery of this city and settlement. This work was found in the chamber of Mr. Deirdrick Knickerbocker, the old gentleman whose sudden and mysterious disappearance has been noticed. It is published in order to discharge certain debts he left behind. So what, uh, what Irving has done here, he is clay. He's decided not to say that he's written the book. He's just claimed that this Knickerbocker guy has written this book, has gone missing and left it in his apartment. And they released this book that this guy had written and it worked. People were just desperate to read what this mysterious man had written. The That's public incredible. went mad for it and bookshops were completely inundated with demand. It just became a bestseller immediately. All from adverts wow. sent in to this press, um, to the press about this guy, Knickerbocker, who'd been, who'd been missing. I mean, it's kind of amazing, really, isn't it? It's such a, such a clever marketing That's technique. That's incredible. Yeah. What a story. At this time, when you have no... There's so few options to make yourself famous or get your name out there or get your stuff sold. What a brilliant way of doing it. Um, now, it was only much later, when the book had become a smash hit, that Irving revealed that Knickerbocker was an invention and that he was the author. And because he was famous by that point, everyone thought he was an absolute a gene, genius. So, basically, he's, he's managed to foster this fascination in his character, so much so that the book sells in great numbers um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about this book uh, just to finish up because this book has quite the impact it's not only a bestseller it has such an impact on current life for a few reasons first of all the character of Knickerbocker went on to inspire the widely used nickname for inhabitants of Manhattan which are called Knickerbockers still what people call them oh, today okay. it uh. later led to the naming of the professional basketball team the New York Knicks 
Oh, wow. So this has come from this same fake character that he wrote to the press about. The Knickerbocker glory comes from this same fake character from this book. And because of the drawings of the Knickerbocker, of, of, of Knickerbocker on the book, wearing long floating pants, what name do we, what word do we get from that? Knickers. 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 It all comes from the same fake what? character. Isn't this amazing? That's amazing. Wow. But also, the crucial thing in this book, which is not to do with Knicker, uh, Knickerbocker, is that it's completely changed the way we view Christmas. Because um, he helped to create the modern image of Santa Claus in this book. He wrote of a man in this book, A History of New York, the good St. Nicholas came riding over the tops of the trees in that self-same wagon wherein he brings this yearly presence to children. Now, at this point, the fascination and interest in Santa Claus had completely gone out of the window. And through this book, suddenly people became interested in him again. A lot of the claim is given to Dickens. Actually, actually, it was Washington Irving, really, that started the trend for the interest back in Santa Claus and a lot of the modern Christmas um, festivities we have now. All from this one book that he wrote wow. under a pseudonym. He sold with lies to the press. He's created the idea of Santa. He's become a huge name in the, in the, uh, in the writing world. And he's also led to the naming of a, an ice cream, a basketball team and pants. I mean, because also, <laughs> you know, at the height of Soccer AM's success, Tim Lovejoy used to claim that he was influencing football fans. <laughs> but he certainly, he certainly did influence culture in the way that Washington Irving did. <laughs> That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get in contact with the show, you can email us at hello at ohwhatatime.com and also do check us out on Instagram and Twitter at ohwhatatimepod. Oh, yeah, and please also, if you like the show, hey, leave a review. That's all we're asking. It's not much. It takes five minutes. If you've done it, you can sit down. If you haven't done it, get busy. Get on your podcast app of choice. That's all we want you to do is to become utterly obsessed with us, like people became obsessed with st- <laughs> the story of Knickerbocker. Exactly. We just yeah. want to, you know, change the world in the way that he did. That's all. That's all. We'll just you know, and yeah, it's all. It's all. A five star yeah. review from you is the first step in that process. <laughs> uh, we'll see you next week, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.